0: We're Misio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. All right, so it was exactly a year and a week ago that we had this great big welcome to the neighborhood Misio Day Phoenix barbecue planned. Do you guys remember that? Those of you who are, who are with us then, it was going to be March 15th of 2020. Some of you, when I just say that number, you already are having some PTSD, right? And we were going to have this big, like, blowout barbecue. We even did mailers. We sent out mailers. We've never done that before. Uh, I was always like, no, we're not, we're not marketing. We're not a business. You know, this is a family, uh, but we did that. And we wanted to know and meet our neighbors here in the community and invite them and do something cool. And that was the week that we were asked to not meet in person because of COVID-19. And instead we met on Zoom. Do You guys remember? And we thought, oh, you know what? We'll just, we'll do this for a couple weeks till it blows over. And then we can get back together again. And that couple of weeks turned into a couple months. Uh, and then we were, some of us meeting in person, some of us meeting online. We thought, we'll just do this for a short time until we can all come together again. Hi, everybody on Zoom. We're still doing it, right? Uh, and so how many of you like went into that at the beginning of 2020? Like, all right, man, this is just going to be a short time. Can't wait till it's done, right? Be honest. It wasn't just me. We we're all like, yeah, you know, this will blow over. And here we are. It's been over a year. There's still remnants of it, at the least, right? It's still happening. Uh, have, have you ever experienced something else like that, where you go into something and you're like, this is just going to be for a short time, and then you find yourself, like, stuck in it? Speaking of COVID-19, do you remember hearing stories of cruise ships that were stuck when the pandemic hit? They wouldn't let them get off the boat, Right? Like, how crazy is that? And so there were people who went on, like, they spent all this money, and they're like, we're going to go on this amazing, dope vacation, go on a cruise, we're going to eat so much food, and then, like, seven days later, we're going to go back to normal life. Well, seven days later, like, no, you got to stay on the boat, and uh, we're not serving crab anymore, right? Here's, here's some toast and bread, some toast and butter. Like, so, okay, that turned into, like, several weeks for many of the guests, but the crews, not the, the, the crews line, you know, the crew members, the crews on the cruise, they, some of them were stuck there for months, months, stuck on the ship, unable to go see their families, to see their friends, to go back to normal life. And the food was not that good for them. It was like in September, six months later, I read an article of like 300,000 people still stuck on this boat. And so let's play this game like, you know how people talk about like, no matter how bad you have it, there's someone else out there who has it worse, right? So no matter how bad you thought you had it, you know, watching us on Zoom in March, like there were people on that cruise ship who had it way worse. But if we keep playing that game, no matter how bad they had it on those cruise ships for six months, the story we're gonna hear about today of the Israelites in Egypt for 400 years, had it way worse. If you remember where we left off in Genesis was they actually went to Egypt for a rescue plan, for salvation, for safety from the famine. There was no food anywhere but Egypt because God brought Joseph there because he used Joseph in that place. There was food there. And so the whole family of Israel that's Jacob, whose name turned to Israel later. He had 12 sons, and all of their clan, all of their tribe, their whole crew, they, they moved to Egypt, and they were given land. They were given homes. They were given food. They were just, like, blessed with stuff because the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he loved Joseph, and he's like, this is your crew. This is your family. Okay, here you go. Whatever they want. And they're there, they're enjoying it, right? It's like being on a cruise ship. They're like, this is incredible. But they knew this isn't the land God promised our family. Remember, God promised our family. He told Abraham, our our grandfather long ago, that we would have this land called Canaan. One day that's going to be our home. And Abraham's even like, or I'm sorry, uh, Jacob, Israel, he's even like, hey, don't bury me here in Egypt when I die. Put me in the land where my father died. Right? This isn't our home, but it was a little reprieve. It was a little vacation. It was a little rest for the moment. And then that moment turned into a year, to another year, and another year, and a decade, and then a century. And then four centuries later, we turn the page from Genesis, and we read the story of Exodus. For 400 years, here's what happened. Joseph, his brothers, they died. They got old. They died. Their children got old, died, right? But they kept growing as a family. They kept multiplying like rabbits. They were filling the whole land. There's a huge amount of who are called the Israelites now. This is a really big family legacy that they have. And so they're filling the land, and there's eventually now another king in Egypt, another pharaoh. He's not the pharaoh who loved Joseph before. That guy's long gone. And this king of Egypt, he's looking around, and he's going, Look at all these other people that aren't our people. Look how many of them there are. What if one day they decide to rise up against us? Or what if one day one of our enemies come in and these Israelites decide to take the side of our enemies? What do we do? And so he devises a plan. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to make sure they know who's in power. We're going to put them into these little work groups. Right? We call that slaves these days, but it says in the scripture, these work groups, and they work them hard. This is not a, a story that's like, just delineated to one nation in one point of history. Like, if we look at the history of any nation, this is humanity. Let's hold these people down so that we could keep our power, right? So here's the Egyptians doing it to the Israelites. So they make them their slaves and they make them work really hard. But it's funny, in Exodus 1, it says this, the harder they made them work, the more babies they had. (laughs) I just think about that, like the reality of that. And I'm like, yeah, what else are you going to do, right? Like, done working a 14-hour shift. (laughs) There's no TV. so. So they just keep multiplying, right? They're having more and more babies. And they're going, what do we do? So then Pharaoh's like, all right, fine. This obviously isn't working. They keep growing. They're going to see that there's like 10 to 1 odds here. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have the firstborn male. I'm sorry, not even just the firstborn. Any born male from the Israelite people will be killed instantly. So he goes to these midwives. Their names are Shipra and Pruah. And I love that the king of Egypt doesn't get his name told in this story, but these two women do. These are two Israelite women who are birthing all these babies into the world. They're, they're the midwives. And so he goes to them, he goes, hey, anytime there's a male baby born, I want you to kill it instantly. And of course, they don't do it. They love God. They love their people. They love life. And they protect the lives of those babies. And then he comes back to them. He goes, hey, what's the deal? I gave you an order. I'm the king here. And they go, hey, and I love this too. They go, hey, listen, Uh, Our women are not like your women, all right? They're much sturdier. (laughs) They're they're just stronger ladies, okay? And so by the time we get to them, they've already given birth and there's nothing we can do. (laughs) Like somehow he buys it and God's good to those two women and they live. But then he goes, okay, fine. I can't trust these Israelite women to do my dirty work. I'm gonna tell all the Egyptians. When you see a baby male dunk them. This is not the kind of baptism we practice now. You drown them in the Nile River. So the Nile River still exists today, by the way, Uh, like one of, if not the largest river in the world. And it was running right through Egypt. And that's why they rose to being the top world power because of the resources they had from it. And what was their resource and their power was to be the destruction of the Israelites. Drown them in the river. That's the story. That's the oppression that we're told about. What was once an amazing vacation cruise ship turned into a nightmare. So turn with me now to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, if you don't know where that is, it's the second book of the Bible. I'm just going to read for us right now the first 10 verses. Now remember, there were 12 children born to Israel, and each of them, each of those sons, had a name, and then a tribe that came out of them was named after them. And so one of Joseph's brothers' name was Levi, and there was a tribe of Levi, all the descendants of this guy, Levi. So this is where the story starts in chapter 2. Now, a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, another translation there just means healthy, she hid him for three months. That makes sense. How do you hide a crying baby at three months, right? So she hid him as long as she could. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her slave girl, took it, opened it, and saw him, the child. And there he was, a little boy, crying. She felt sorry for him and said, This is one of the Hebrew boys. Hebrew, by the way, is another name for the Israelites, in case you didn't know. Verse 7, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go call a Hebrew woman who's nursing to nurse the boy for you? Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Moses, in that language, literally is translated to just drawn out or pulled out. So we get this infanticide. Did I say that word right? Infanticide? Thank you. Story, right? That's genocide for infants, right? This story of, like, the king of the most powerful nation is ordering the murder of these baby boys. And we get this story in here of how one particular boy is set aside for rescue. Now, a lot of times uh, when it's told like that, you go, why just that one? Like, why is that one special? Why not all of them? And what we find in the story actually is that there were many other boys who were rescued too because lots of other male Israelite Guys grow up later on in the story. And so we're just zooming in on one story because this particular one is meant to be used for the rescue of all of them later. This is a story of God not just pulling one aside just so he could be special, so that he would be used for the rescue of everybody, right? This is how God works. Why did he call Abraham. Not just so Abraham could have a big family and be blessed. He said, I will bless you so you will be a blessing to all the nations, right? So we zoom in on this story here. And this baby is born, Moses, who's later named. And they're trying to hide him. And they're going, okay, now he's starting to cry. People are going to find out. We're going to get busted. So what do we do? Well, they didn't have many choices, right? We hear this story. And I know when I was younger, I would hear this story that like, the mom then would place him in a basket in the river and is like, what? That sounds like child abuse, right? Like, what? why would you do that? Well, she's literally obeying the law that she has to obey or the whole family will be killed. But they do it in a particular way where they are trusting that the God who has protected them for generations, for centuries, would also somehow step in and protect this helpless infant boy. And it's very interesting. The story that we're told is they make this basket, right? But actually the original Hebrew word, Moses, by the way, is the one who wrote this story down. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. And the word he used very intentionally is the word for ark. You remember that earlier on in the story in Genesis? There was another ark we've heard about, right? There was another ark that brought safety to particular people in the midst of the chaotic waters. You remember that story? This man Noah and his family. And God told Noah, hey, make this ark, make this giant basket, if you will, this big boat made out of wood, and then I want you to cover it with tar, with asphalt and pitch, is what we read in this translation. Uh, the, The... Original translations in English use this weird word called bitumen uh, in pitch. And so it's tar. It's like asphalt. But it's the same thing that God told Noah to coat his giant boat with to make it waterproof. There are three times we actually hear about this weird tar-like substance being used to protect some type of building project. So that was the first one with Noah in the water. This is the third one, actually, in Exodus 2 here with Moses in the water. And there's another story in between that. It's around Genesis 11, I believe it is. It's this weird story called the Tower of Babel where all of humanity, it's right after the flood story takes place, and they know what happened. For us, it's right after the story, but it's the next thing we hear. But what's happened is now humanity has begun to multiply again, and there's lots of them. And it says that they were trying to make a name for themselves. They were trying to make themselves great. They were trying to reach up to the heavens without God's help. And so what do they do? They build this giant tower to get up there. And what do they coat it in? Bitumen and pitch, tar, asphalt. The same stuff. It's almost as if they're saying, hey, let's make this baby waterproof so that God can't come against us like he did before. We know what happened right? So they're trying to protect themselves against the God of all creation. And what does he do? He scatters them. He goes, not in my house. This isn't happening, right? So three times we hear that story. Two of them were God providing the salvation, and one was actually working against God. You know, a lot of times we can do things that look like things God has called people to do in the past, but we're doing it for our own power, for our own protection, for our own praise, for our own selfish reasons. And God sees that and he steps in. So this time though, God provides that protection. He goes, okay, here's what we're going to do. This baby right here, we are going to save. So they, they coat it in tar so it wouldn't sink. It wouldn't get wet. It's waterproof. And he, they set him safely among the reeds. So they don't just like push him out into the water and go, Good luck. See you later, right? They, they're like, hey, we're going to follow the rules, but, you know, we're going to, he's safe right here, and we can watch him. And so the sister, she, she comes out, and she's standing along the banks at a safe distance, but she can see. She's watching over him. We're going to find out later this sister's name is Miriam. It's the same name given to uh, the little girl who gives birth to a Savior one day named Jesus. Mary, Miriam, it's the same name. And so Miriam, she's also... The lady we're going to find out later on in the story. After God does free them from slavery, she's the first one to lead all the people in this worship song, a song of praise. So we're, we're told some really cool things about this sister. And here she is as like a protection watching over her young baby brother here. And then you get Pharaoh's daughter, the king of Egypt, his own daughter, coming out to bathe in the Nile. They didn't have running water showers like we have today, so this is what they would do. And she goes out there, and she's got her servant girls, and she's like, hey, what's that basket over there? I hear some noise. Go check it out and open it up. And they open it up, and there's a baby. How crazy would that be? And she recognizes this is one of the Israelites' babies, and yet God gives her compassion over him. So, okay, the family's done what they were supposed to do. <laughs> they put him in the Nile. Now let's get him out. And I love this, like how just just cunning this is right here, how smart this is that Miriam, Moses' sister, standing right there, she goes, oh, hey, by the way, uh, if you care about that baby, you know, I could just go get one of these Israelite women to come over here and and help you feed him. This, This is a young girl, this young princess, and she can't nurse the child yet, right? She's like, I got one of these uh, Israelite women. I can just go get them, and they'll nurse this baby for you. And what ends up happening is now Pharaoh himself is paying the mom of Moses to take care of her own child. The guy who commanded you're going to have to kill your children is now going, let me pay you to be a mom. Paying a slave, right? This is a slave. He had, like, no reason to pay. And God shows so much favor, so much grace, so much love, so much care, so much protection to this boy because he's going to show all of that. He's going to use this man one day to show all of that to all of his people. So now she's getting paid. How could you imagine that roller coaster of emotion right there? Of like, I, I got to put my baby in the river, he might die suddenly like, no, now he's back in my arms and I'm getting paid for it. That's incredible. We're going to see this pattern actually continue in this story where God not only rescues his people, but he uses the people who were oppressing them to actually bless them on their way out. We'll get to more of that next week. But the story continues. Moses grows up after being raised and taken care of as a child in his mom's home. Then he goes to live in the palace with the princess she's technically his adopted mom now. So he grows up in the palace. This Israelite male child who the king of Egypt wanted to kill is now living in his home, eating his food and wearing his clothes. I love that. So he grows up there and he's raised as an Egyptian. He's learning all the Egyptian gods. He's learning all the Egyptian academics. He's dressing like them. He's living fat on what they can offer, but he knows who he really is. He, he can kind of look around and go like, I don't blend in here, right? And so he walks out, and one day while he's walking out to visit some of his people, the Israelites, he sees another Egyptian beating a Hebrew man, beating an Israelite, and Moses is moved to compassion, a desire to rescue, and even anger. Here's the thing. Two of those things God's going to use greatly one day. But Moses' anger and his immediate flinch response to use his own strength to fix the situation is something that's going to get him in trouble time and time again too. So this is just the first time in his anger and his rage, he goes and he murders the Egyptian. And then he tries to hide him in the desert. Like he he drags him along through the sand and covers him up. And then the next day he goes out again and he sees two Israelite men arguing. And he goes, hey, hey, don't argue. You guys are supposed to be brothers. And one of them looks at him and goes, oh, what are you going to do about it? He goes, who made you the ruler over us? Which little does he know, one day he will be. And he goes, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to kill one of us like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And Moses is like, oh, no. I'm found out. They know. And he knows now word's going to spread. And eventually the king, the Pharaoh of Egypt, he finds out about it too. And he wants to kill Moses now. So Moses flees. He runs away. And this baby boy who was born to be the rescue of God's people is now not even anywhere near them. He's a murderer and he's on the run. And we've seen this repetition all throughout the story so far too, haven't we? There's supposed to be a child who would come. God made this promise in the garden. A child who would come one day, who would make all things right and rescue God's people. Who would save them from the enemy. And time and time again, we get this hope in this little child who ends up blowing it big time. And Moses is no different. So Moses runs away to the mountains, goes to this place called Midian. He meets Uh, These women there who are drawing water from the well, but these mean shepherds try to scare them away. I don't know what's going on with my computer here. Is this something you're doing, Patrick? That's weird. I'm just going to shut that off. Someone hijacked my iPad. Creepy. Okay. (laughs) I like the narrative that someone hijacked it. We'll go with that. It just sounds more fun. (laughs) All right, we'll figure out what's happening with that later. So, he, he runs off. He sees these women. They're, they're seven daughters, actually, of a Midian priest. And they're drawing water from the well. These shepherds are like, hey, get out of here. Get away from our well. And uh, Moses steps in, again, this desire to protect the afflicted. He steps in. And he goes, hey, hold on, hold on. They just need some water for their family. And he helps them out, right? And so they go home, and they tell their dad about it. They're like, yeah, we ran into this problem with these shepherds. But this Egyptian dude, because they thought he was Egyptian, came and helped us out. And he goes, well, invite him over. So they invite him over. They eat dinner. Bada bing, bada bang. He ends up marrying one of his daughters. So Moses now is just living a good life in the mountains of Midian. He's got a wife, a family. He starts to have children. And he's working for the dad there. His name's Jethro. And they're just hanging out. And he's trying as hard as he can to forget about Egypt and what happened there, to hide his past, to keep it covered up. So that's our hero of the story, right? Moses. That's the the rescuer who's supposed to come. But the story is not over. There's a a better hero. The true hero is still around. And so I want you to look with me at the end of chapter two. We're just going to read verses 23. I think it is. Yep. Through 25. So Moses is gone. The people are still enslaved. They're being treated harshly. And in verse 23, we hear this. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. You know, the one who was killing all the babies. Now more babies can be born and live. That king of Egypt died, but the Israelites were still slaves. So it says the Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. And they cried out. And their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to who? God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant. That's a deep promise commitment with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, who would be named Israel. And God saw the Israelites, and God knew. What the picture that's being painted here when Moses writes this many years later is not that God forgot. And then he hears them crying. He's like, oh, yeah, I should do something about this. It's that God was present with them the whole time. He knew. That's a, like the biblical no, you know, is like a very intimate thing. He knew them. He was with them. It's what we heard last week in the story of Joseph. Wherever he was in the pit, in prison, wherever he was, God was with him. And God continues to be with his people, even in the darkest times, even in the worst thing that they were going through. God was with them and he knew. He knew what they were going through. He saw them. He heard them. And God is the rescuer. He's the hero of the story. He's the one who shows up to deliver his people. He's the one who comes to their aid when they cry out to him. And that same God who was there for them in that moment, just like He was 400 years ago during a famine, just like He was before that when Abraham kept messing things up, He's the same God who now, even centuries later, is here with you today. God has heard your prayers, He's heard your cries, He sees you, He knows and he's present in his world still. I know there's a lot of brokenness. I know there's a lot of division. I know there's a lot going on just in your life. God knows. He knows, it, and he's with you. And he's calling you to come be with him. See, that's the thing. God's always present here in his creation, in his world. We're the ones who walk away. We're the ones who, like Moses, who flee to Midian, to the mountains. Like maybe you aren't literally running away to the mountains, right? But you do it in your heart. I know I do. And God is calling you to come be with him. He's here waiting. We're going to see a miraculous rescue that happens next week. And there's going to be a miraculous rescue that happens one day for us too. That's not a promise that like all your problems are going to go away tomorrow. That's a promise that God's with you in the midst of those problems and that one day the true Rescuer, Jesus, will come. That he will come and make all things right. And the way that God used this guy Moses, a flawed man, to deliver people from slavery in Egypt, God himself would come as a man much later, the perfect man, the perfect human, to rescue us from our slavery to our sin, to our selfishness, to our deceit, how we even lie to our own selves, to to our violence, to our oppression to the way that we rebel against God himself. We're enslaved to that. Do you know that? Just like they were enslaved to the Egyptians. Like no matter how hard you try to stop doing certain things, you keep doing them, don't you? And no matter how hard you try to do better things, you don't do them, do you? And I could say this because I'm just speaking for myself right now. And this is something that a guy named Paul, who knew Jesus closely, said about himself too. You know, he wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament. And he said, I'm the worst of sinners. I keep doing the things I don't want to do. and The things I know I should do, I don't do. Isn't that just true of humans? We're enslaved to it. But a rescuer came. A rescuer was born. And just like with Moses, there was a king in charge then who tried to have him killed. He heard this story that there would be a boy born to the Israelites. Would be the rescuer, and he tried to have all of the boy babies killed. And Jesus was protected. And Jesus grew up, and Jesus didn't flee. And instead of Jesus giving in to his violence to help rescue his people, he actually turned his life over. Moses reaches out and strikes, and he kills another person to try to rescue. How foolish. Jesus comes and lays down his own life. And in doing that, he breaks the chains of your sin, of your slavery, of your oppression, doing the things you don't want to do. He breaks that free. And then Jesus rises from the grave and he now lives forever as your rescuer. It's not just some dude that died a long time ago. That's a great story. He lives forever as your hope, your salvation, and your rescue. Amen? So we now are a people being formed around this hope and this truth. Just like we're going to see the Israelites were to be formed around this God who rescues and go, hey, now go out and be what you were always supposed to be. Be a blessing to the other nations. Show them what this good God's like. And we've seen this rescue come fully in Jesus, and he will fully again one day come. And in the meantime, he's being patient. Like, why didn't he take care of things finally and fully then, he's being patient that more people would come into this family, that more people would recognize they can shake off those chains of their slavery to sin and they can come into this rescue. And we get to be part of that story. We get to be part of showing people that good news and bringing them in. May we be that church, you guys. Father, we ask that you would help us with that, that you would give us your power, your grace, your boldness, your love, your gentleness, and your truth as we go out in this world. Lord, that as you continue to release us from our own slavery to sin, God, that we would be a light to the world around us of hope that they would see that they too can be set free by the work of Jesus. It's in His name and in the power of your Spirit and to your glory, Father, that we ask all these things. Amen.